Welcome to another episode of Terminal Talk, hosted by Frank and Jeff, with a very special guest today. Yes, we have a very, very special guest today. Indeed. Who is it? Uh, Charlie Lawrence. Hi, this is old man Charlie. You <laughs> finally get to meet me. Yay! Yay. Awesome. So it's it's great that you're here. Um, uh, who's is he here to dust the floors? Is that in addition to being a the fantastic voice of uh, Terminal Talk? You may know him as Old Man Charlie. Uh, if you've ever made it to the end of one of our episodes, uh, <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of <laughs> well, Terminal Talk. Hey, don't Frank don't turn off your podcast. Oh, not yet. It's <laughs> not <laughs> actually ending. We're not done yet. Uh, no, Charlie it... has a storied history in uh, in mainframe and uh, computing technology. Yeah, you've been doing this for what, 50, 52 so years? years? Yeah, that's that's a long time. Yeah, I started when I was seven. It's amazing. <laughs> I walked into the IBM in Kingston and they said, Come on in, kid. <laughs> no, really. How, how did you get started? Well, let's see. I was working in the retail industry, as they say, for about a dollar an hour. And IBM Kingston, when there was an IBM Kingston, was doing a big hiring spree. And I decided to go in and see what I could do there and took a test. I actually started to take a test to be on the assembly line and put, basically putting the square pegs in around holes. Uh, I managed to do that. They pulled me out of that test and threw me into another test room where it, where it actually got difficult. And that was the, as they called it, the programmer's aptitude test. And the rest is history. Nice. So, yeah, when you started, though, you were doing the punch card thing, right? They were doing punch cards back then. That's all there was. Yes. Right. Actually, I invented the punch card <laughs> and the Internet. Wow. Yes. I've had now, an amazing history. So ex explain this to me. The, the concept of the punch card, is it really just like every jazz statement but – punched out like in Morse code? Like Oh, we're going to go back to the episode two, two episodes <laughs> Yeah, episode ago. two, punch cards. Yeah, let me tell you about the punch cards or the IBM 5081. This is and always had, a model number. They had zone punches and digit punches and combination of those punches would map column by column to a byte in storage. Thus the 80 car, 80 byte or 80 character record that's referenced so often. So basically every line in a JCL statement is a card. They still are, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> They're still considered cards, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but so so I remember hearing you talk a little bit about um, why the episodic characters are the way they are, and it's based on the cards, right? It, uh, actually, it goes back to the census of – and I was there in the late 1800s, I believe it was, <laughs> or maybe early 1900s, and uh, Herman Hollerith was involved and some of the uh, architectural imp implementations, how's that? Um, and they had um, a card reader of sorts. They would punch the data into these cards or paper tapes, whatever it was. They would run it through the machines. And when they get, actually got to the point where the concept of the f actual punch card that we're familiar with came about, the the um, cards were actually read with like a wire brush that was hanging down. I, I moved my hands like your listeners couldn't <laughs> see it. But if you picture a series of wire brushes going across, uh, was maybe seven, seven and a half inches across, the card would come along parallel to the wire brush, and there would be reed heads underneath. As the card went by, it would determine whether it was a certain kind of a punch here or there or whatever. The, it turns out in order to um, deal with the, the what's, I guess you call it inaccuracies or the, the glitches that could occur as it came across, they had to make sure that a hole in the so-called zone 
the upper two or three rows on the punch card was not too close to a digit punch. So if you had a digit of one or zero, they would modify the, the, the entire coding thing. So it was based on a Hollerith code, but it had to be, the cards had to be adapted or designed to deal with the uh, less than optimum technology of the day. So why, why like a mechanical sensor and not light? Or was oh, that not light, invented yet? Uh, light. <laughs> Actually, there was light on the uh, buttons <laughs> when oh. you pressed start on the on a reader. A little little green light would come up that would say it was ready. Huh? <laughs> but there was no light. Uh, there was no light reading. Speaking uh, of that, little, I'm just curious because you said there's like a green light, like. <laughs> I thought color hadn't been invented yet, well, based actually, on all the footage was, I've seen. Well, no, the, back the, in the colorized day. versions. Of oh, the, okay. Yes, yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I think it, I think Ted Turner or whoever. Yeah. 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 So t- sometime yeah. in the '60s, something happened, and they're like, "Oh, wow, that was a green light." I've been looking at all this time. Probably why I dream in black and white right. because yeah. <laughs> with that old timey rag. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So where was I going to go with this? Oh, I, speaking of the little green light that comes on when the card reader is ready, uh, <laughs> I started, I'm doing the toggle switches uh, finger thing. Um, I started as an operator, a uh, computer operator. I heard you were a smooth operator. <laughs> <laughs> Still am. <laughs> well, that's the end of this episode. Um, yeah, actually, I started as an operator. And uh, going back to the interview process, I had taken that programmer's aptitude test. They brought me into a room and started to say, Charlie, you qualify to be a programmer. I said, oh, great. What's that? Oh, the programmer is the person that writes the instructions that tells the computer what to do. I said, fantastic. How much will I make? And they said, well, not that much because you're going to become an operator. I said, well, okay, what's an operator do? Oh, an operator is a person that hangs the tapes and puts the punch cards into the card reader and card punch and plays with the toggle switches on the console. That sounds said, fun. I said, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll do it. What's it pay? Uh, $80 a week, sign me up, because that was twice <laughs> minimum wage, which is what I was making. Going back to the green lights, for those who were paying attention, uh, on the card reader when it came ready, as a third shift operator, meaning we started late in the evening and we would work until morning, uh, we would stand by the card reader when there wasn't much to do. Jobs were submitted, uh, not by Jez in those days, or HASP or ASP or any of this high-tech stuff, jobs were submitted by taking a deck of cards, wrapping a rubber band around it, throwing it into a window, uh, where somebody would take it, carry it to a table, and when we got ready, we would dispatch that job by taking a deck of cards, throwing it in the card reader. Well, by 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, all the jobs have been run. So we had nothing else to do other than stand around that card reader, drinking coffee and talking. And uh, if you had a, kind of a nervous twitch, you'd wind up pulling those little buttons out and putting them back in again. One evening, somebody switched the ready and the uh, feed check light. So when somebody tried to start the machine in the morning, you can see where this is going. Yep. They put a deck of cards <laughs> in there, hit the uh, button to make it ready, and came up feed check. Right. And the <laughs> FE, the field engineer, as it was called, would come out of his cage, literally a, a cage, and uh, that's because they were dangerous. And it would, come, <laughs> it would come over, and he looked at it and pulled the covers off the back and got out with scoping everything, could not figure out why the feed check kept coming up. He pulled, pulled the brushes out, dust them off, dust off the reed heads. And um, I'm standing there in, in my total innocence, of course. I says to the uh, f- engineer who was trying to fix the problem, 
um, excuse me, is that card reader over there the same model as this? Mm-hmm. And they go, yes. I said, well, why is the ready light in a different position? And uh, <laughs> the, ex- the expertise I will not repeat here, but we had a, uh, a shift meeting the next day to tell everybody that you should not be pulling those little things. <laughs> so it was coming ready all the time, just that nobody knew it. <laughs> It's one of the interesting interesting things about working in like a, a big company with like a, a long history and especially a field like computing is like you don't necessarily realize when you're kind of standing on the shoulders of giants. Like you never know like, oh, wow, that, that person who taught me how to do this went on to do this great thing. And we, so often we we leverage what we learn and we, we grow. Um, I'm just, you know, you've probably had a chance to work with some some great minds. I'm over, we're always hearing from people like like Jeff Fry, who who Charlie taught back. Well, there, back in there the was day. A, there was a Frank DeGilio I once met. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was very impressed by him. So I'm I'm just curious, like, was Charles Babbage as cool a guy in person <laughs> as uh, as the books make I, him out to I be? I knew this was going to lead up to that. Yes, ba- Babbage or Babe, as we call him. Oh, really? Okay, yeah, yeah. nicknames. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, he was a good guy. Uh, <laughs> There was no Starbucks, so we had to make our own coffee back then. But uh, Babe or Babbage was re- – mm-hmm. actually, I taught him everything. Oh, he, really? Yeah, right, right. Nice. Yeah. And, and uh, the, what's the touring guy? Oh, Alan Turing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, you know him too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They all sing your praises. Yeah. <laughs> so where was – actually, I had another story to tell you. Oh, surprise. Oh, surprise, surprise, surprise. <laughs> this is where you cue that, that ragtime music. Right? Oh, it's, it's going to be it's playing in the background. Oh, oh, fantastic. I know you don't fantastic. see the tape spinning in the background, but, yeah, we can actually edit this digitally after the fact. So you're talking about working with uh, you know people who, who helped to bring your career along. Uh, again, I was an operator, and, and we started with standalone programs. We had a mod 40, and we'd be feeding punch cards into literally the, the, before the operating system where it was there. Um, actually, I, retrace again. Get used to this, folks. Um, <laughs> when I got hired, uh, or, or part of that interview process, they took me around to different shops, computer uh, setups in the in the Kingston site. I walked into one area, and they were running 1400 series, 1401s. Which is a uh, old, even old to me, a computer, very okay. old computer, uh, born in the fifties, and we still had a lifespan into the sixties. And then they brought me into this room where they had these bright, shiny machines with blinky lights and toggle switches. They were the three sixties. So I said, <laughs> "I'll go where the new machines are." Uh, fortunately for me, that was an area called product test. So I got to touch not only the software, I got to touch the hardware. And that's how I learned to to deal with assembler language. Time marches on. I was a computer operator for a couple of years looking for something else to do. Had taught myself assembler language, uh, which is very old for those, again, who are listening. Um, Basically taking a couple bites at a time, adding, subtracting them, and comparing them and going on from there. Uh, It wasn't a Python-ish kind of environment. (laughs) Had to throw that in. You actually had to manage your uh, your, your bits and bites. There. Yeah, I did. Tell, since I did take a Python course, I just had to mention Python because I'm <laughs> fluent in Python. Right. Um, so back to the back to the punch card days. So um, we were doing something called a SysMap, which was uh, basically they would take the operating system, they would run the uh, object code through, uh, or you load an object. I figure which it was, but because, again, it was back at least a couple of years, and they would <laughs> modify every branch instruction so that as it executed, there would be a program interrupt, and then it would track which branch it took. 
And at the at the end of that, they could tell which test cases would exercise what portions of particular modules. Well, as that went on, uh, one of the management team said to the developers in product tests, we would like to have a program that lets us know how or when one module calls or goes to another module to establish the relationship and kind of like, like the, 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 the flow as the test cases were run. The systems programmers and developers said that's impossible to do. So being the ordinary kind of an operator I was, I took the output, tried to understand it, wrote an assembler language program that would, uh, again, figure out and, and provide what I called ESP, the Extended Sysmap Package. Even back then, I was into inventing uh, acronyms. <laughs> and uh, rather than being the bad guy in the block, I gave it to the developers and I said, look what I did. So they turned it in. And produced this great report, gave it to the management team, and the programmer got a couple thousand dollars in reward, <laughs> and I think I got a $250 award, and that's when I learned, yeah, go ahead and give it to the other guy anyway, because that <laughs> catapulted me into it, because they found out I wrote it after a while, mm -hmm. and they sent me to programming school, and I became a programmer. But you became a, a, a sysprog, though, more than, it wasn't, it was different than Well, actually, I, I, I bounced all around because nobody liked me. <laughs> I, I did some systems programming. I developed, uh, contributed to the design of something called RRSF. I forget what that mm -hmm. stands for, but it's part of RACF, Remote Resource Sharing Facility. Mm -hmm. Checks out. Yeah, works. Okay. It's a facility. And I didn't That's make that up, but it's, it's part of RACF. Um, and where was I going with this, Frank? All the different things. All that you've the different done, things yeah. that work on. So I, I got to work uh, in. Uh, Glad somebody's paying attention. The, Stephanie's still setting I, I got to work as a systems programmer. I got to work as a uh, developer. I got to work as a tester, and um, both in VM and, and MVS. Um, there was a point very many years ago where um, I had you know, again already gone through a programming school, and they were asking for. Um, lab instructors. So I, I just basically you would come over and help the students figure out what's wrong with their programs, guide them in the right direction. So I came over for my uh, first day of being a lab instructor, and the instructor, who happened to be my manager, uh, says to me about halfway through the week, this is my first week in education. <laughs> I've never taught a, a single course in my life. He says, you know PL1? I said, of course I know PL1. I took it six months ago. Good. I'm going on a trip tomorrow, Thursday and Friday, and uh, would you take over to class? Sure, <laughs> I can do that. Ran home and cried. Um, <laughs> read all the PL1 manuals I could dig through, showed up on Thursday, got about 30 minutes into the class and realized I just went off the cliff. I said, let's take a break. We came back from the break, and I said, Okay, obviously, I've been going in the wrong direction with this course. <laughs> Reset. I've never said a word, and I started over again. Huh. Got through the day and a half of teaching PL1, which became even more frustrating because I had a Ph.D. student in the front row who used to teach PL1 in college. And every time I start to go in the wrong direction, he kind of shuffles his feet, changed his body position, and he got to, to, to understand that whenever he moved, it would make me unsteady because I thought I was going in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. And he, he would laugh his head <laughs> off because I, I, I'd stop for a moment and stutter, and, and, but eventually got back on track. 
Monday morning, my manager comes back, and I'm, like, wiping the sweat off my brow. Oh, thank goodness Joe is back. And Joe says, how would you do? I said, great. He said, good, finish the course. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I became an instructor. Doctor. And, and wow. that, that wound up being about 18 years of my 30 years. I was going to say, you've done most, most of the time was doing that, right? Yeah, and, so- yeah, and I would bounce back and forth. I'd, I'd work in, uh, in the uh, education field, developing courses or teaching, uh, assembler, uh, what we call the systems programmer courses and developer courses, um, PL1, of course, and eventually PLX. And that led into the teaching the internals of VM as well as MVS. There's another story there I can tell. <laughs> if I you kinda, ask me. <laughs> I kind of have a question about like education. Like yes. you, you talked a little about doing like the Udemy course. Um, do you see value in like the t- the new types of like online training? Like, there's so much you can always go to YouTube and type something out. Right, which is exactly what I've been doing. Uh, one of the things I found out, well, even in IBM during the uh, about sixty six to ninety six time frame, uh, you, you would have to reinvent yourself every so often. You don't go from the VM background to yeah, the still to do. MBS and still do. So I got to uh, the point after I in quotes retired, but I never really did. Um, where I would decide, well, I have to understand this. Uh, back in 96, I was like, maybe I should understand CGI. Uh, and I started to study it, and I said, nah, that will never work. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I kept at it. So uh, about three months ago, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, start looking around for another adventure in my career and was online. I said, well, why don't I learn some Python? So I took a Python course, and that was from the, I've never known how to say Udemy. 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 And from that, I started looking around, well, how can I use Python? Oh, with Amazon Web Services. I'll get Amazon Web Services certified. I can do that. So I started taking the course. I'm about 25% of the way through it, and I'm, like, lowering my target for what I'm going to get certified for. But as I go through that course, and I'll answer the question in a second, Jeff, is where is he going with this? Uh, as I started taking that course, it took me in different tangents. So I started to examine Chef. And from there, that took me to other tangents. So I think that the fact that we've got, you know, the whole Internet available to us, you've got YouTube, you got, no matter what term you, you Google or Bing or whatever you like to use for a search engine, you will like find us. something. <laughs> you, like <laughs> you can find something that can help you uh, improve your Hot career. Bot. This is the way it goes all day, folks. I'm trying to talk. <laughs> they butt right in. So, yes, Jeff. Dogpile. I find. I find <laughs> that will probably get Alta Vista. <laughs> Alta Jeff. Vista. I haven't thought of them in a long time. So, but yes, Jeff. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. But, but so, you know, you've, you've, you know, the, 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 the bedrock programming languages. Um, do you see value in something like, like Python, like that, you know, that lets you do a, a lot with a little bit of code? Or do you think you really have to understand the full stack? Uh, uh, trick question. Uh, yeah, I do think you need to know Pythonish like language. Yeah, mm. There's all kinds out there, but something like Python allows you. From what I've seen, again, I'm not the Python expert yet or ever. Uh, <laughs> but learning something like Python, which, if you look at the uh, examples online, allows you to do something quickly. And uh, the thing that I found interesting on one of my assignments here was using Python in the context of notebooks, in the context of Bluemix. Mm-hmm. And that's what kind of 
sparked that interest in Python this time around? Yeah, a lot of times the, the stuff we do, we don't realize it, um, especially a lot of the new hires. You don't realize how high you're coming in right. um, and how much you depend on that came before that. And, you know, you're, I, I, I envy you in a way in that you got to kind of see a lot of the, the foundation getting built. So I'm just kind of curious, like, what was it like programming before the invention of electricity. Well, I was wondering again, <laughs> I would say, I'm so glad he gave me all those kind words. And then yeah, right, right. Oh, I, should know, I should know better. Um, I, f- I, I feel fortunate that I started when I did because I understand what's going on in the machine. But the downside is that is I understand what's going on <laughs> in the machine. So when we start looking at the development process in today's world, I'm like, well, how does like, where are those really? bits going? Yeah, when well, they get right. allocated? Is that a move character? Is that <laughs> oh yeah, it doesn't translate tables. Is it start interpretive execution? I don't know. That's why it's. I think for those who are coming into the industry, they're very fortunate because they can work at this higher level and they don't need to understand stuff at the bottom. Ignorance is bliss. Thank you. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, uh, yes. So I, mean, I want to go back to something you said before that I think is kind of, kind of important. Um, the fact that you have over the fifty million years you've been doing this, um, you've consistently reinvented yourself and said, "Okay, I'm now going to go down this path and I'm going to do this and stuff like that." Um, that does not seem to match the stereotype for people of your your age vintage vintage, vintage That's yes, like yes, yes. um so for somebody who's who's kind of new what what does the, the what sage advice would you give them on on how to keep doing this through the career you've been doing this over 50 years how do you how do you do that? How do you keep reinventing? From one millennial to another. <laughs> we didn't say what millennia. <laughs> uh, for me, it's just, it, it's, it's me. It's my personality. I love to learn how to do things. Uh, I like to take the challenge of learning new things. Uh, sometimes halfway through learning those new things, I can see a limitation in terms of how much I can consume in, in, in time to be able to use it in a productive manner. So a lot of the, the training or the research that I've done in the past five to ten years, it's just to get enough of an understanding so that when I appear in a meeting on a new project and some terms are flowing around, I can at least get a general concept of what they're talking about. Like the other day I was listening to a, a, a podcast. Oh, really? And they, yes, and they use the term spool. Which I was like, goodness gracious, I remember Which what that everybody was. knows yeah. as an acronym. For simultaneous peripheral, peripheral. Two, simultaneous peripheral output in. online or operations online, something to that, to that effect. Yeah, I just think it's, it's cool that um, somebody who's new can see that a career of reinvention and jumping to new things. And, and I think, you know... If you are new, you may not see that you have to do it, um, but it's going to happen more often now. Yeah, I was just going to say that it's a fa- much faster pace. When I first started to get into the, the web development 
environment. Uh, for those at home, he just did finger quotes. <laughs> <laughs> finger quotes. Insert finger quotes. Uh, I did it again. Um, you know, I had self-taught HTML, which was no big deal because we used to teach a thing called script back mm-hmm. in the day. It was basically script. It's a generalized markup language. See how I threw that in there? <laughs> and um, GML. G- yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was working for a company that was based in Lake Katrine in one of the former IBM buildings. And, you know, was writing HTML, inserting HTML code. Um, and from there, I started to realize there were other things going on in the Internet. So I went from doing the development side to doing the testing side. And in the testing side... I found one of the problems, uh, this is outside of the IBM world, where uh, there was uh, insufficient planning, insufficient analysis of where they're going to go, what they're going to do. Uh, w- one of the things that the company I worked for uh, would do is take uh, pharmaceutical books, I'm, I'm talking like tons of loose leaf mm-hmm. manuals, which were their training manuals, and we would put them into a DVD kind of environment. So it was HTML, which would include a reference to um, a, a sound file. So if you, again, you, you click, select a button to, to get an audio description of, of what that glossary term means, then you would hear somebody's voice saying, well, spool is simultaneous <laughs> peripheral output online, or a, it, it would do a pharmaceutical term. And we w- would get into testing, we would find out that the links were broke, Broke? Is that a word? Broken. Not in that. Broken. Thank you. <laughs> so when they edit this, it'll say broken. The nope. links were no. Nope. <laughs> the links were broken. I'm up early. Yeah. <laughs> he is a retired man. <laughs> oh, is that my phone? No, no, that's that's Frank's phone. I forgot to. Uh, yeah. Issue the warning to silence all devices. You see, I, this is I, staying I, in too. I turn <laughs> I turn my phone off. Yes. Yeah. But nobody ever calls me anyway, so it's okay. <laughs> we used to call you. Yeah. yeah. We used to call, call you regularly, I believe. <laughs> so, so let me tell you what happened here, folks. I stopped at a coffee dispensary out on Route Nine today, and I was just driving through the IBM parking lot. And these two guys spotted me, and he told me to come in from the cold. <laughs> so where was like I? Our guest canceled. Oh. Get in here. <laughs> so, so the truck. You look like a mainframe guy. So Troy, he's got gray hair, <laughs> and he looks lost. So the uh, so, so again, we would find things wrong. Broken links go into audio files, or we'd have duplicate audio files with different names with different descriptions. So the next time we started to do this conglomeration of taking pharmaceutical training materials, I took all the glossary terms, threw them into a spreadsheet, inserted HTML into the different cells, and sorted them and showed ahead of time where they had duplicate definitions and mismatched definitions for the glossary. That allowed the the uh, medical people to get the correct information before they were recorded, mm-hmm. because otherwise they had to pay the, the voice, which was not me, to come in, hmm. and they got paid some, some decent money. So I drove down the cost of the website, uh, or the, the educational DVD, mm-hmm. and the other thing is we got it to the point using that that um, spreadsheet, I would also have a pattern for how the audio files would be named using the first couple letters and the last couple letters. And if we had a, a hit, then we call it one or two or, or, or whatever. And from that process, it allowed 
the easy recording of all the uh, what does this have to do with the mainframe? I don't know. We're waiting to find out. The easy recording (laughs) of all the sound files, uh, the correct references in the HTML, and so on and so forth. And the company I worked for was like amazed that anybody would bother to go through all that. They weren't used to the I'll call the IBM way. We made sure at least sometimes, to make sure (laughs) that things worked, that there was stuff in place before you start coding so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel, so Mm -hmm. that you don't have to recode and slip schedules, Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and it's funny that you say it that way. A a bunch of people that I've known who've left um, IBM um, often come back and say that uh, the things that we would rail against, the the order with which things would happen, the process, um, really comes in handy. Mm-hmm. It's really kind exactly. Of and I and I told that company and another company that I worked for, I said, if you don't do it this way, I realize you, you don't have the funds that big corporations have, mm-hmm. but it, it's worth investing in that analysis and in that quality, right. and which they failed to do, and they wound up going belly up. And the next company I went to. I walked in, had my first meeting in a conference room. I said, this is very reminiscent of a company I worked for three years ago. And if you keep doing this, we're going to be out of business. And six months later, we lost a big account and about 50% of the of the workforce got let go. So you go to places and then they and I go break, out of business. And I break them, yes. The Ted yes. McGinley effect. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you, you know, you're talking about like uh, you don't want to reinvent the wheel. And, you know, the, what's, the, what's the saying that nobody – and I think they said this in the last episode. Nobody writes JCL. He just – Use somebody well, else. Well, yeah, that's 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 reuse, repurposing, right? That's exactly, right. and that's uh, exactly. I, I just cut you right off. But that's, that's quite okay. right. Uh, that's how we actually started anywhere. with it with the JCL. You would find somebody who had a deck of cars that did this or that, and you would modify it to your to your liking yeah. and, and submit it again. It, Unfortunately, if you didn't change the job card, somebody else got billed for it, and also <laughs> their name went on the listing. So when the operator wrapped up the listing with the with the punch cards, put it in the output bin, somebody else would get it. And they look at it. That's not my stuff. They throw it away. <laughs> yeah, but at least you didn't pay for it. So right. It yeah, shit. I don't see right. the problem right. here. <laughs> yeah. But it's you, know, you, you never know like when something you did like five, ten years ago for a completely different job role, you're going to say, you know what? I think this will work right here. Like so – when when you know you probably were involved in like a lot of the Y two K type planning and stuff. Oh uh, yeah, well not here. I was actually outside, okay. outside in the and as we call it the real world. Um, and I say I say that with little air quotes around it, air quotes around it, uh, because when I was in IBM and I would leave education to go out into the real world, meaning the development world of IBM Kingston at the time, I would learn what the developers need, come back to education and training, and help provide that. Uh, going back to the real world, which is outside the walls of IBM, um, I got involved in a whole Y2K thing. I worked for a company that was based out of Connecticut, hmm. and we took on a contract in uh, Albany Medical. Wow. And we basically did a, a survey, uh, interviewed practically everybody who touched a computer in some way, shape, or form. What programs do you use? Who owns those programs? Uh, who are those programs compliant? Y2K compliant? Uh, if that program goes belly up or you don't have it, is it critical, mission critical? 
will a patient die or will a patient not get billed? Both of those are mission critical. <laughs> one's <laughs> one more one, than another. Right, I right. One's critical to the patient and one is critical to the hospital. But in both cases, they actually do impact the hospital. So we <laughs> built this huge report that listed everything that was compliant, non-compliant, tried to find ways to fix the old Y2K problem. Were you able to leverage um, your work in the BC to AD conversion when you got started in that? that? was Well, actually, we just modified the one letter. And oh. we're done. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you've been obviously doing this um, since um, God created the He was around when they invented cisplex timers yeah. and the concept of time itself. So there you go. <laughs> Actually, I started before my IBM career. <laughs> I got hired in 66, but from 64 until 66, off and on, I was in what was called core plane inspection, where we would look through a microscope, the core planes, for those who have just joined us, core, core planes. Of what We're just was, waking up. What was used in the, uh, I have to take my nap. Uh, <laughs> the core planes were what was used to be memory. Little, right. little donuts, as they were called. We would eat the donuts sometimes. They had wires going through them. It was a and Jim we, Belushi sketch. We, we, we would examine them under a microscope. Tom and uh, you know, that, that's about it. Yeah, so yeah. so you're talking about the magnetic core memory, right? I think we've what were talked we talking a little about? about that. Somebody right? talked about yeah. it. So, yeah. yeah, so people who have been to the show. If only I had more magnetic yeah. memory. <laughs> so, but but I have a, a, a semi-serious question. I have pictures of core plans. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll put them on the uh, on the on the website. There. Anyway, um, it's fifty years mainframe plus over fifty years. <laughs> We're trying to downplay that. Okay, fact. <laughs> right. Long, longer than I've been alive on the mainframe. I don't yeah, want to say yes. Charlie's old, but... The first time this, again, for your, the audience's edification, as it were, uh, let me tell you the first time that Frank and I met, he mentioned that he was four years old when I started working for IBM. <laughs> That's the way the whole discussion is going. Yeah. I, I don't want to say Charlie's old. <laughs> but, you but, know, we're used to IPLing a system by hitting a button, as, as I understand it, um, IPLing a mainframe back in the day was it involved turning a crank like um, like Mr. Wilson's car on Dennis the Menace. <laughs> wow. So, what was? <laughs> we're just not going to get through this. No, um, we're not. Uh, what was your favorite? This is a special treat for the Terminal Talk faithful. <laughs> yeah, we're going to hear about this one. How can you treat that man that way? <laughs> I can see it now. He You're seems treating so me nice. <laughs> Actually, I think compared to the way we normally treat him, this is pretty There, there are no flying objects. <laughs> no room. helicopter. That's good. Yes. So, where were you going with your question? <laughs> I was going to ask something. I can't remember what it was. No, I, I was wondering, you know, all this from, from the time that really the beginning of 360 till now, what was the thing that you thought was the most mm. cool change? That came out of the coffee machine. <laughs> coffee was a nickel. Uh, the, the coolest change for me, where was it going? No, the coolest <laughs> change for me was, uh, again, I was working, teaching VM internals. Right. And originally, for those of you um, who are not aware of this, originally VM or virtual machine, not to be confused with VMware. This is IBM's VM virtual machines. It would provide... Uh, an environment where you could IPL another operating system, such as 
whatever it was, it, MVS, MVT, yes, whatever was yep. around at the time. And it did this by giving control to the virtual machine in problem state. And if some if instruction was hit, that was a, a supervisory type instruction that you had to be in supervisor mode, it would cause a program interrupt. You all know the story of program interrupts. We get a swap in the PSWs. The current PSW is stored at low storage location, low core location, Obviously. where the old PSW <laughs> is, and the new PSW is fetched, at, which points to something called the fly, first level it's interrupt handler. <laughs> and that would be part of VM that would say, does the guest, as we call them, does the guest or does that virtual machine think it's in problem state? If so, simulate a program interrupt. If it's in supervisor state, simulate the execution of that privileged instruction on behalf of the program and then restore control back to the guest so that they think they either got a program interrupt or they've successfully completed that instruction. Now, if you paid attention to that whole thing, all of that work, all of those lines of code that was part of the VM system were mushed together pushed down into the microcode, that is no more punch cards, pushed down into the microcode and became part of what was called interpretive execution. And there was a single instruction called start interpretive execution that gave control to the guest, to the virtual machine. It could run away, it could do things in privileged state, it could do things in problem state and never lost control the only time it lost control was when the operating system got to a point where the VM control program had to do something on its behalf, and that caused what was called an interception, not an interrupt, an interception. And that would cause VM now to get control to do whatever it had to do to emulate or imitate or tell, make the guest think that it actually did what it was trying to do. All of that made for a more efficient, a faster, uh, more secure environment. And that single instruction became part of a one-week class that I used to teach. And I was just fascinated that a single instruction could do that much. Well, and it's become, right, the, the, the SI instruction is really what makes the ability to have so many Linuxes running in a VM environment efficiently. Yeah. It's all based on that one instruction. So, yeah, it's still a big thing today, right? Yep. For those who, who, for those who think they, uh, how do I rephrase this? For those who know what a start interpretive in execution instruction is, and, and again, going back to what we discussed earlier, for those who are just joining this this programming development environment and are very happy to have their Linux machine, or so they think, <laughs> that is all happening because of the magic of a control program, an operating system, a hypervisor, all the stuff that's going on underneath. You can't see my hands, but this <laughs> stuff. I call it stuff underneath. You call it a stack or something like that. Right? So so you yeah. mentioned a, a PSW. What is that? Oh, PSW. Thank you for asking. A PSW is a program status word, and it contains information that indicates what the state of the machine is. And the most significant bit back in the day was the supervisor state or the problem state bit. 
if that bit was set to, I think it was zero, meant you were in supervisor state, it was set to one, you're in problem state, or the other way around. But basically allowed uh, the, the dispatching or giving control to a program to let it execute and do its thing. And as soon as it tried to do something that required supervisor intervention, such as a start I.O., not to be confused with start subchannel. Start I.O. was the instruction that initiated an I.O. operation. That was a privileged instruction. If you were not in privileged mode, it would cause a program check. So the way a program could ask for I.O. input output to be performed, would it, be, it would use an SVC, which is supervisor call. Supervisor call, again, causes an SVC interrupt. The problem status word or program status word that describes the state of the machine as it was at the time of the interrupt gets stored in a particular location in the low core, and a corresponding new PSW, wake up, Jeff, gets loaded. That is for the supervisor. Is this still? <laughs> it's still <laughs> that, Thursday. And in, and in wow. that, we, we didn't roll into Friday. Yet. In, in that, this is going to be a three-hour show. In that, through the magic of editing, uh, Jeff's going to make it a 30-second show. Right? And, and to me, that that is the beautiful part. And most people don't use the word beautiful in the context of programming and machines. But I was introduced to the 360, 370. I watched the 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 um, the development, the evolution of that whole set of machines, and I find it beautiful that we were able to use to this day that that problem state, supervisor state. And uh, there was another piece of information back in the day. I always have to say back in the day because it was like last century, uh, <laughs> which contained a storage key, and that meant that you could protect storage and allow people to have uh, permission to access it or not. That brings us back to PCP. Tell me when to stop. PCP <laughs> was the primary control program. It was the first operating sure system. Sure it is. Sure. Well, it was, <laughs> oh, we snickered. Oh, I'm going to do PCP. Uh, so we, we would IPL PCP, the, the uh, primary control program, I think it was called, and that was the start of the whole series or lineage of MVS. The next version was something called MFT. And imagine this. You could have multiple f fixed number of tasks, uh, uh, address spaces, if you will, areas with – it wasn't address space, area within the address space that uh, MFT was running in. And you could have a fixed number of tasks. But that fixed number of tasks depended on what the operator did. So the operator intervened, would stop all the work, would use a very long operator command to modify – the uh, number of tasks, reallocate memory to a particular space, and jobs would run, again, submitted by JCL. They would have a, a field on it in the JCL that would say, I'm a class C, class B, whatever. Based on that class, it would be put into one of those fixed task areas. And it was, there was 15 tasks was the maximum you could run. Gee, I wonder why. Well, the, the storage key was <laughs> what zero to yep. the Fox. So zero was used for supervisor code, the one, two, three, four, and so on up to Fox. Each one of those codes was used for one of those tasks. Then you ask, well, what was the next outgrowth of that? Then what's the next M MVS, <laughs> multiple, multi, multi programming with a variable number of, of systems or tasks. And that would allow you to have. Uh, the operating system take control and allocate space and memory to allow one to three or whatever number of jobs to run. 
Well, and that whole concept of of uh, key storage is is one of the things that makes Z um, fundamentally different uh, from what you would see running in in a x86 or yeah. even a power environment. Right. Awesome. Was I supposed to reply to that? Or? No, no. Okay. No, no I just <clears throat> nobody gave me a cue. So no. <laughs> You're listening to another episode. <laughs> No, we have, we have to prompt it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're running a little low on tape now. Yeah, yeah and, really. Uh, yeah, oh, the, there's no tape in the machine. There's here. no one around to you change never the reels. Record. <laughs> so it's probably time for us to be wrapping up, and, and we really want to thank our, our our guests because a lot of people have been saying, we hear this guy at the end. Yeah, what's well, his deal? What 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 the hell is going on why with Why do him? you call him Old Man Charlie? Why, why now you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so ends... Another uh, exciting episode of Terminal Talk. Thank you for joining us with another exciting episode of Terminal Talk featuring (laughs) Frank and Jeff. There you go. The opinions and views expressed (laughs) in this particular video, audio, excuse me, are expressly those of those who said it and not necessarily the opinions and views of any particular corporation. Wow, we probably should have had that we in a long time forever. ago. Forever, yeah. <laughs> but you can still sue somebody, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, at, at Terminal Talk. Uh, at Terminal. Now uh, on the Twitter sphere. Hold on a moment, and we'll give you the email address if you have. Did you do traffic and weather? Yes. Well, uh, come down Route Nine W today. It was a little right. slick. We had rain, uh, spritz, and now we cross over into the Poughkeepsie area where it's still. Where is spring? Spring Tra- has failed to install. it. Traffic backed up on the mid-Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> this, this episode is just never going to end. It's going to keep going forever. That's actually not the end. <laughs> oh, Maybe God. the end of Frank who just choked on his tea. Uh, seriously, seri- I, why do I use those long multi-syllable? <laughs> Thanks, guys, for having me on. I, I, I'm, you know, I, I kid around about being honored. I'm honored to be here because I've seen some of the folks that you've interviewed in the past and to... Uh, I should probably never going to put this up, but it's okay. <laughs> Made the old man feel good. Well, you know, no, we're, we're honored to have you. I that's mean, right. It's... Out of all the customers, out of all of the A people we've had on oh. the show, you're definitely one of them. Yeah. So, <laughs> is this where I do it again? Okay. Yeah. Old they... man Charlie, run us out. <laughs> Thus ends another exciting episode of Terminal like Talk featuring Frank and Jeff and their interesting guest, Charlie Lawrence. Signing off for this time. Until next time, I will recue the tape, put some more holes in those punch cards, <laughs> dust off the uh, dust reader, the thing readers. The, in the what reader was it, a 1073? The show is presented by IBM 5081. Order yours today. Frank and Jeff, any final words? Oh, God, I'm sorry. We are not editing this at all. Not at all. Putting it out exactly. We're doing it live. We're doing it live. (laughs) Live stream. Can you do that? Is that technology available? Thank God, no. All right. That's perfect. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Bye.